Good afternoon and welcome to this month's Sunday Forum. I'm Sarah Einstein, I'm the Minor Canon and Chaplain at St Paul's Cathedral. And today it's a great pleasure to welcome Rosemary Lane Priestley, who I've known for some time, so it's a great pleasure to witness her in this role. <laughs> um, today Rosemary will be speaking about her book, Unwrapping the Sacred, Seeing God in the Everyday. Rosemary is the Dean of Women's Ministry in the Two Cities area of London and she's been a long-term contributor to Radio 4's Thought for the Day. She's the author of several books including Does My Soul Look Big in This and The Courage to Connect. She's written a great deal about how we can find God in the ordinary and the everyday stuff of life and how we can train ourselves to see the sacred. She'll be talking for about 40 minutes and then there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions. And there'll be copies also available of the book if you would uh, like to buy a copy and have it signed by the author. Now would you please welcome me in joining in welcoming Rosemary. I was just saying to Sarah earlier that I've only just started wearing reading glasses, so I'm still at the stage where I have to work, do I, do I need them or not? Can I get away with it or not? But I've decided I'm going to rely on them today. Thank you, Sarah, for your welcome. <clears throat> and thank you all for the opportunity to offer you some thoughts on what it means to unwrap the sacred in our daily lives. Unwrapping the Sacred was the very first book that I wanted to write, but the second that actually got written. A friend had introduced me to the publishers at SPCK and the proposal that I took to the commissioning editor there was that I wanted to write a book over a period of 12 months and reflect from a faith perspective on whatever happened in that year to me, to those around me and in the world. I was convinced that I could do this because I am convinced that we are our own starting point in our search for God. That everything that we experience and observe offers possibilities for connecting with the divine, with the sacred in the world. So any of us can do it with the unique raw material of our own lives. The editor, however, didn't actually know me from Eve and at that point wasn't even sure that I could write at all. So she was understandably slightly sceptical uh, about what must have sounded like a rather vague proposal. And instead she pointed to a sentence in a sermon that I'd once preached and said, I think that there's a book in that. Well, I wasn't convinced by that, but I knew it was the only way that I was going to get published, so... That was the beginning of the process of writing The Courage to Connect, which is a book which explores some fundamental human experiences, amongst others, perfectionism, envy, doubt, our habit of trying to live 100 lives in one, and connection itself. Asking what we might learn about God, ourselves, and one another through all of that lived experience. It was a different way of exploring the same idea that I'd presented to her originally. The idea that we can connect with the holy in the stuff of human life. 
So once the Courage to Connect was out on the shelves and sold a few copies, SPCK agreed to me attempting my original idea of writing for a year about whatever happened to happen around me. In that particular year, some of the things that happened to happen were that my mother was hospitalised with mental health issues, Barack Obama was elected, I had a third baby and what I like to call a midlife conversation with myself. Adverts appeared on buses in London telling us to get on and enjoy our lives because God probably doesn't exist. The 31-year-old daughter of a colleague died of a very aggressive breast cancer and some good friends got married and Beijing hosted the Olympics and many, many more things. So I thought and prayed and wrote about all of that and much more. Not always in real time. Some of my reflections were written up several months after the events occurred, and because of the demands of daily life, they were written up in the early hours of the morning. But the book is structured so that it has a logical progression through that year. It's an attempt to demonstrate that we can reflect theologically on the material of our everyday lives. It isn't the sort of book that gives answers. It offers ways of engaging with life's questions, whilst acknowledging that sometimes we're left just having to trust that God is there in the darkness and the silence of our experience. In order to give you a clue as to the style in which I write, I should tell you about a backhanded compliment which I received some months ago from a bishop who will remain nameless. We were having lunch in a gentleman's club. That's not typical for me, I hasten to add. And I was sitting at the bishop's left hand, and a man who reads a lot of theology was sitting at his right. Talking about a writer whom he greatly admires, the bishop said to the publisher, you know, he takes all of his experience and he theologizes everything. He finds God in all of it, in films, in novels, in everyday life. Isn't that amazing? And then he seemed to remember something, and he turned to me and said, of course, Rosemary, that's what you do, isn't it? On a popular level. <laughs> <clears throat> so, if you're here for a session of highbrow and abstruse academic theology, you may be in the wrong place. I do God on a popular level. Partly because I spend too much of my time rooted in a world of bouncy castles, Percy Jackson, Disney films and Lego to lose myself in some inaccessible ivory tower. But, if you're not already furtively looking for the exit, what I hope to do is convince you today, in the next half an hour or so, of your own capacity to connect with the sacred on every level to remind you of the possibility of encountering God in the height and breadth and depth of your own lives. I'm not going to read from any of my books today, nor use examples that I've used in them. If you happen to have read any of them, that would be repetitious for you, and if you haven't and decide to, I don't want to spoil it. Instead, I want to talk about the process of unwrapping the sacred and some ways in which you might do that in your own lives using illustrations that I've come across in the past couple of years. I'm going to start with a reference to a novel, a popular novel, possibly, but a highly perceptive and intriguing one. In her book, Flight Behaviour, the writer Barbara Kingsolver describes a father playing a game with his young daughter. 
The little girl is called Cordelia, and I think she's perhaps about 14 months old. Having wrapped her carefully in a large blanket, her dad then pretends that he doesn't know where she's hiding. Do you think we ought to throw these old rags in the garbage? He lifted the green, fuzzy bundle over his head, invoking loud hysteria, which a stranger might take for anguish. But Cordy loved disappearing. Which was funny, because not that long ago, her brother could throw that blanket over a toy she was crawling after, and Cordy would sit up and howl with despair at its sudden disappearance. She didn't know how to look under the blanket, and he couldn't resist repeating the experiment, amazed at his sister's conviction that unseen things do not exist. Sometime between then and now, Cordy had conquered the biggest truth in the world. Wrapped deep in the blanket, slung on her father's shoulder, Cordy has figured out that unseen things do exist. The biggest truth in the world. The truth that underpins our faith. Because how else can we believe in God if we don't recognise that what is physically unseen is as real as what we do see? Those who don't get what the kingdom of God is about, said Jesus in the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel, look and look, but they can't see. They listen, but they don't understand. And that's us a lot of the time, isn't it? We have this hope deep within us that the world is shot through with God's presence and glory, but it's really hard to see it in the middle of a tedious meeting, or when we're sick, grief-stricken, anxious, or depressed when our self-worth has taken a knock, or when the day just seems to lack direction, purpose or meaning. Our desire and our ability to connect with God seems to ebb and flow. Yet if we can hang on to the hope of God's presence among us with some degree of persistence and determination, if we can just keep trying to pick up the thread again when we feel that we've lost it, over time, we can become practised at catching glimpses of God or even stumbling on moments of glory. I was listening to the composer Sir John Taverner last autumn on Radio 4 on what turned out to be the day before he died. It was a remarkable programme by Andrew Marr featuring Taverner in conversation with the writer Jeanette Winterson. At one point, they were talking about the idea that a lot of people don't immediately understand contemporary music or the sort of poetry that is not obvious in meaning. But if you saturate yourself in it over the years, they said, with familiarity and perseverance, understanding will come. You'll gradually begin to recognise the references and cadences, the patterns and structure, the light and shade, the symbolism and connections. And that, I think, is very similar to the task of trying to connect with and interpret God's presence in the world, trying to unwrap the sacred. It involves frustrations and disappointments, good days and bad. It takes accumulated experience and a gradual deepening of wisdom. Yet wherever we are on that trajectory, there is the possibility of meeting with God, so long as we are willing, in the spirit of reflection, to saturate ourselves in life. But how do we remove the blanket? How do we discover the reality of unseen things? 
One of our best contemporary Christian writers and preachers is, in my view, Barbara Brown Taylor, an American Episcopalian priest and teacher of religion. In particular, her book, An Altar in the World, explores the idea that we can all be interpreters of God's presence in daily life. And she's just brought out another one, which I think is still only in hardback because it came out very recently. And it's called Something Like Into the Darkness. And that specifically looks at the darker experiences of our lives and how we find God there. I'm going to quote from Barbara several times today and without apology because her ability to connect people with truths about God is, I think, remarkable. And she consistently does it by referencing everyday life and experiences that we might recognise. It all began for her as a child because of something that she heard in a sermon. She heard her own parish priest from the pulpit describing the young Barbara caring for tadpoles and likening her to God as creator intimately involved in caring for the world. The connection made a deep impression on her and she tells us, I became a detective of divinity, collecting evidence of God's genius and admiring the tracks left for me to follow. Prickly pods of milkweed spilling silky white hair, lightning spinning webs of cold fire in the sky. As intricate as the veins in my own wrist, these were all words in the language of God, hieroglyphs given to puzzle and delight me, even if I never cracked the code. There are infinite words and hieroglyphs in the language of God, reflecting the diversity of God's children and our different passions, preferences and susceptibilities. Some of us will find that it's the natural world that most effectively connects us to God. My dad was passionate about walking. The Yorkshire Dales, the Lake District and the Pennines were his heaven. His most vivid experiences of God's presence were when he was looking down on a landscape of peaks and tarns, or trekking across bleak moorland under huge skies of scudding clouds, or come to think of it more often in the driving rain. I think he thought Psalm 121 was written with East Lancashire in mind, as on difficult days in the parish of which he was a vicar, he lifted his eyes to the hills and wondered wistfully from whence would cometh his help. Some of you will be like that. It doesn't need to be Cumbria or the Pennines. Even a northerner like me can admit that it might be the Cotswolds or the New Forest that acts as your doorway into the glory of God. Or it could be your own garden or the pots on your balcony, which I'm sure are brimming with God's creative touch. Whatever makes this into prayer, what makes this into prayer? What makes it an encounter with the sacred? What makes it an experience of the holy is simply your response. The unfolding of your heart to the intimacy of the divine presence. Less explored, perhaps, are the possibilities of meeting God in the built environment. If there is a connection between God and beauty, I sometimes wonder whether we need to examine our prejudices about where beauty is to be found. If God is everywhere, why do we not readily expect to encounter the sacred in urban landscapes? I wonder how we might challenge ourselves to rediscover the divine in the best of engineering and architecture, city skylines and aerial views of densely populated places. 
We are told that exercise taken outdoors, surrounded by nature, has a more positive impact on our health than time spent on a treadmill in the gym. And on one level, intuitively, I believe that. But on the other hand, I want to balance it with a different intuition. That cities can be immensely life-giving too. I've lived in London for 16 years now, and I'm still with Samuel Johnson. I'm not tired of London, and I don't think God is either. In the book of Revelation, St John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth is a vision of a city. A city whose walls and foundations are adorned with precious stones. A city which has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light. A wonderfully green city, though, with its tree of life with twelve kinds of fruit and the leaves which are for the healing of the nations. Perhaps I'm being fanciful, but it seems to me that the city of St John's vision combines the best of urban architecture with the miracles of the natural world, pointing us to the possibility of encountering God in both. So one starting point for unwrapping the sacred discovering God's hieroglyphs, is the natural world, and another, the mystery of concrete, metal and stone. We have countless opportunities to explore the latter through architectural exhibitions, open days and events here in our own city, and simply through exploring its richly varied buildings and spaces. We may be surprised what stirs our spirit at the top of the shard and points us to God once we are open to the possibility. Then there's another landscape to explore, which is that of human lives, our own lives and those of other people. About 18 months ago, I took up running. Don't be too impressed. At the height of my athletic ability, I was still only managing a couple of miles twice a week, always alongside the canal, so that there were no sudden inclines to catch me out. And recently I've had to stop because of that curse of the middle aged, a dodgy cartilage. But one day, several months ago, I braved a different route away from the canal and having overstretched myself, predictably, took the last quarter of a mile at a lingering pace, catching my breath. In that quarter of a mile walk through an inner city residential area, I found myself noticing countless different sorts of human encounter going on around me. There was a laundrette with a couple of customers a playground where two women were chatting as their toddlers careered around, a community centre and a small art gallery, a residential home where care workers were pouring out the first round of tea of the day, a market revving up for the day, a resource centre for asylum seekers, a nursery and a secondary school. There were street corners where people had stopped to chat, a supermarket, a pub, and outside the pub, a homeless man sitting talking to a market stallholder. In how many different circumstances and places we as human beings connect with one another in an everyday life sort of way. The combination of connections and the variety of our exchanges is endless. All of that goes towards making us what and who we are as individuals and as communities. Even the consequential strangers, as one professor of human development has called them, in other words, the guy in Pret who gives us a genuinely cheerful smile as he hands over our flat white, the woman we always say hi to at the gym, the fellow dog walker. Even they remind us of the importance of human connection and bolster our sense of belonging in the world. And of course, some of our human connections go much deeper. 
And all of these encounters, lifelong or lasting only a few brief seconds, matter. As the writer Lucy Mills observes, our lives touch, be it only for a moment or for an extended period, hearts grazing one another as we endure suffering and share joy. Some of us will do most of our unwrapping of the sacred in the triumphs and crises of human experience and relationships. In a moment of attentive listening to another person, we will be struck by the resilience of the human spirit, the courage that people draw up from some remarkable depth in a time of disintegration and pain. And we will recognise the divine imprint in that person, perhaps even glimpse truths about crucifixion and the possibility of resurrection. Surely this is what Jesus was about in those long days in which he spent himself in connecting with other people. The lonely and misunderstood, people without hope or strength, without a place in society. He was in the thick of human encounters, rejoicing with, suffering alongside other human beings whose fragile hopes and longing to connect with others he understood and shared. In them, he saw the image of God, and so might we in one another. Again, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, Every day I look at my life, the lives of my neighbours, the world in which we all live, and I hunt the hidden figure, the presence that still moves just beneath the surface of every created thing. The presence that still moves just beneath the surface, the presence of the sacred, of God's life in ours. And there are other ways that we remove the blanket and discover the reality of unseen things in the life around us. Some of us will find ourselves connecting with God in the global issues and political events of our world. We will sense God's presence and challenge when we gather with other people who share our concerns about conflict or food distribution, asylum, trafficking. Whatever it is, it can be a meeting place with God. The God whose passion and anger resound through the words of Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, calling for an end to empty festivals and a new and real commitment to inclusion and peace and relationships of generosity and grace. Activism can be a way of life that is also deeply contemplative because it draws us closer to knowing God's purposes in the world. At other times, perhaps we will encounter God through what we do with our bodies. It's easy for Christians to become detached from elemental physical expressions of God's creativity and to get lost inside our own heads. Only yesterday I was reading an article in the magazine Psychologies about the therapeutic and life-giving possibilities of dance. One person commented, dance is the opportunity to get out of the thinking mind to somewhere more fluid and potent with possibility. There is a realm of being between body and mind that we move in. I think this relates to what lies at the heart of Christian faith, the story of the incarnation, with its core message that God risked the particularity and vulnerability of living one single human life. In order to leave us in no doubt that our lives too are sacred and holy. The incarnation is the quiet revolution of God's constant presence among us. 
God's word resonating with our lives. God in the physicality and emotion, the surprise and sometimes the rawness of human encounter. We can, if we're not careful, easily turn our exploration of the Christian story into a very wordy experience. I say that with a sense of irony. <laughs> and I'm not going to dance for you. <laughs> and we can forget that the central miracle of our faith is that the mystery of God became solid, tangible, muscled flesh, fully present in a human family, a community, a historical context. Sometimes, in order to meet with God, we have to touch someone, make something, play football, hold a child in our arms, take a deep breath of a beautiful fragrance, or try out a new recipe in our own version of MasterChef or the British Bake Off. Spirituality is inextricable from our experience as bodies in the world. This idea was reinforced for me by a book called Take This Bread, by an American woman called Sarah Miles, who first learned to be a chef and then became a war correspondent for a number of years, reporting on conflicts in some very dangerous parts of the world. Then she had a child and decided that war zones were not the best place for them to live together. So she settled in San Francisco, where one day she walked into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church and received the bread and the wine. She wasn't even sure why she did it, but her reaction was extraordinary, kicking off a chain of ideas and encounters and actions that changed the course of her life and the mission of that church. Over the next months, she made the connection between the Eucharist and the impetus to feed people, quite literally. She'd been a chef, food was a passion, and she'd lived in parts of the world that were poverty-stricken, where people intuited the sacred nature of food. So she opened a food pantry in St Gregory's, and where on Sundays people receive Holy Communion, on Fridays still they come to get loaves and melons and pasta and rice. Sarah writes, Just like the strangers who'd fed me in El Salvador, I was going to have to see and understand the hunger of other different men and women, and make a gesture of welcome and eat with them. Communion wasn't a private meal. The bread on that table had to be shared with everyone in order for me to really taste it. Because in that bread and wine, we meet Jesus. The Eucharist, for many of us, is a kind of first order meeting place with God. We meet God in our eating and drinking, our washing and sleeping, our dancing and playing, our making love, our knitting, our learning to surf, and our rec receiving of bread and wine in the sheer physicality of our lives. Sarah Miles tells us that in Spanish there's a phrase for this. When we truly live an experience, we come to know it on su propia carne, in our own meat, our own flesh. If we cannot meet the God who was incarnate in human flesh, in our own bodies and the bodies of other people, then where can we meet God? Unwrapping the sacred isn't about discarding the flesh in order to expose the spirit. It's about discovering the intimate relationship between the two, discovering that the material is, if you like, infused with holiness. So how do we cultivate this habit of discovering the divine in the detail of life? It's one thing to say that all of life is the raw material for our search for God, but how do we progress? How do we grow and deepen our experience of the holy? 
do we leave it all to chance or do we need to be more strategic about unwrapping the sacred? Well, on the one hand, I think that we can't force it or control it and that God's incursions into our lives and ours into God's will, will be spontaneous and surprising, will sometimes happen by chance and will always depend on grace. I think Jesus took the material that his daily life offered him and engaged with God on the hoof, so to speak. I think he called out his thoughts to God and about God as he went about his life and his tasks. I think he had meditative conversations in which he and others drew nearer to the God who sat between them. Nicodemus under his tree, the Samaritan woman at the well, Martha questioning Mary's laziness. And I think we can do that too. I think we can and do pray in a kind of ongoing stop-start conversation, just as we have those sorts of conversations with others. But we also read that Jesus withdrew at particular times and particular places in order to be with his Father. There is something about intentionality in prayer that doesn't stop us from also being spontaneous, but which matters in a different way. I don't think I have much that is particularly new to say about this because so many people have gone before me and written and spoken about habits and rules of life, patterns of prayer and the benefits of a regular place and time in which to open ourselves consciously to God's presence. Many would say, and I agree, that we can be deeply enriched by time spent in those places where, in the words of T.S. Eliot from Little Gidding, we can kneel where prayer has been valid. Prayer is always valid, everywhere, of course. Yet places that have been saturated with prayer over many, many years can be particularly helpful to our soul sometimes. Those places know the presence of God in their own flesh, on sui propria carne, their own wood and metal and stone. We probably need those places in our lives. And to be intentional about meeting with God, we probably need some sort of regularity in prayer. What that looks like will vary hugely for different people. I struggled for many years with the conviction that in order to be truly spiritual, I needed to be on my knees at 6am, because then and only then is prayer really valid. It took me years to acknowledge that I'm never going to be able to drag myself out of bed earlier than the rest of the family and achieve that deadline. There are five of us in our household and at least two of the others are always up before I am because I'm just not good at mornings. So recognising my need for a spiritual challenge right now and my inability in the past couple of years to achieve anything like the pattern or regularity of prayer that I long for, I've just made a commitment to do something called the Ignatian Spiritual Exercises in Daily Life. Some of you may have done this or something similar yourselves. It's possible for people to go away to a retreat house and complete the Ignatian Spiritual Exercises in 30 days, speaking to no one but your spiritual director for the entire duration. But for many of us, including me, that isn't an option. It might not go down very well at home. So I've committed to the daily life version, to seeing my spiritual director once a fortnight for roughly 18 months and putting aside quite a chunk of time each day to use the meditative and contemplative exercises devised by Ignatius of Loyola. I think I'm telling you this because now I've made my intention public. I'm going to have to go through with it. It's the first time I've actually mentioned it to a group of people. I'm doing it because I do believe it can help to have a pattern and a discipline of prayer 
doesn't have to be like that one. But like most people, I do find it quite a challenge to achieve it. If there's a time that we can make regularly available in our daily or weekly rhythm, if we can build longer periods of intentional prayer, such as days of reflection or retreats into each year, it will stimulate a deepening of our spiritual roots and understanding, and we should cultivate it and make it happen. But our pattern might be quite often in flux, changing because we are changing, and that's fine too. I think a combination of randomness, spontaneity and surprise with discipline, regularity and intentionality can be pretty powerful. And of course, an openness to meeting God in silence. Sometimes we will need to meet God in silence. Sometimes there is in us no capacity for words because we're too hurt, too scattered within ourselves to gather our thoughts into a coherent order let alone into sentences. So after we've railed at God like Job or poured out our hearts like the psalmists, we simply sit and taste the silence like Elijah in the cave at Horeb, meeting God not in the wind, the earthquake or the fire, but in the sound of sheer silence. We may pray in silence because we can't quite find the right words to express the depth of what we're carrying in our hearts or simply because we recognise that God is beyond words, cannot be captured in syllables or sounds. And so we need simply to sit and still ourselves. It's something to do with creating the space in the midst of so much activity and so many words for God to be seen and heard. The psychiatrist Judith Orloff, author of The Ecstasy of Surrender, says, for grace to enter your life, you must make room for forces beyond your control. We struggle to make that room, but the struggle can be worth it. Discovering the unseen, unwrapping the sacred, is not an exercise with guaranteed and predictable results. It isn't a do this, then that, and what you get is a divine other sort of process. It's more tentative and experimental than that, sometimes gloriously exciting, sometimes disappointing or frustrating. We discover the unseen through a process of experiment and inquiry, through trial and error, patience, adventure and risk, through the refusal to stop looking, searching, prodding and investigating life, and through stopping all our activity and sinking into silence and rest sometimes. Our desire for God can draw us into a lifelong process in which we invest our deepest and most vulnerable selves, a process of seeking and finding and longing for more that is prayer itself. The mess and the melee and the glory and the grit of our everyday lives all have the potential to reveal the sacred. Our lives are sacred and the ground on which we walk, the ground of our lives, is holy, to be trodden upon gently appreciated and nurtured. Because, I believe, the divine is found in the detail, in the very warp and weft of our lives. Unseen things do exist. And if we believe that, we will dare to twitch the corner of the blanket to uncover and explore the biggest truth in the world. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for that very rich reflection. Um, I'm sure that there are questions from uh, those of us who are listening. Would anybody like to be the first brave person to ask a question? <laughs> yes. I'll make a comment. Um, I've been going to church all of my life, and I would say that the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is to have a sentry prayer. Mm -hmm. In my church, my church back home really believes that spirituality must be emphasized. And we meet every Wednesday at 10.15. It's just a women's group, interestingly enough. And we follow the Thomas Keating Basil Pennington um, plan. And then after the meditation, we share our experience about the beauty and the glory in the ordinary. <laughs> And it is such a magical, wonderful group. Of course, there's absolute confidentiality. It's nothing like a Bible study, you know. But it has really helped us grow as Christians. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just the most glorious thing I think I've ever done in my life <laughs> in church. I would also like to say that Barbara Taylor-Brown, whom I know rather well, has left the church. And it's very interesting. Um, she she's left, hasn't she? Because she's left parish life. Exactly. Yeah. Was not emphasized. Yeah. When churches don't emphasize mm -hmm. spirituality, it's really sad. They become relics. And I think that's one of the things that Sarah Miles and Barbara Taylor Brown are really, really trying to address. Yeah. Yeah. She's left parish life, hasn't she? And she lectures and uh, teaches at. Um, a seminary, I think, or yeah, yeah, university, um, and still preaches in the yeah. context of yeah. church. So she's not kind of turned her back on church altogether, but yes, yeah, she's certainly left parish life. Yeah, it's really encouraging to hear about that sort of group because I think that kind of regular intention, yeah. uh, simply to look at the raw material of your life and say, so where, you know, where is the glory of God in that, and where are the difficult bits too, and um, it can be very fruitful, as you say. Something interesting about the middle of the week as well, I always think, you know, it's kind of like on a Wednesday, you know, right in the middle of the week, which I think is, is nicely symbolic, really, right in the midst of things. Thank you. I think there was another question here. Yes, um, one, I was listening to you, uh, I couldn't but uh, think that there was something relevant in, if I may say, in your own gender and the recent history of church and theology and mm. intellectual life too. The um, philosopher Charles Taylor speaks of the disenchantment of the world with the growth of a new kind of knowledge yeah. and the enlightenment onwards. But what you seem to be saying, in a sense, is the reverse of that. And I wonder whether there isn't something not uniquely, but peculiarly um, feminine in an experience, perhaps from the body, a more somatic point of view about the world from which we can all learn, and if I may say so, perhaps especially uh, men. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm always very, very careful in uh, talking about issues relating to gender and in being um, not wanting to make generalisations um, but I think that there is some, sometimes there is something about some women's preaching <laughs> um, which um, is more 
willing and open to connect with things that are to do with bodily experience and to do with, well, actually a different kind of biological experience that, that women have, which connects them in some ways with creation and um, giving birth and, and nurture. But you see, immediately, I think I'm on really dangerous ground there, aren't I? Um, because men nurture and, uh, and create, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think there is something in what you're saying. And I, I, I think... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think we tell some different stories um, and bring some different social history and some different um, biological experience, both of which uh, can feed into uh, just the things that we talk about, you know, just the things that we reference um, and take people to different places. Because in the past, in the pulpit, and the pulpit is, you know, kind of my experience, is uh, male has been normative. I think that's, I think that's quite key, um, that, that things are said and things are assumed simply because somebody's coming from a particular perspective. And now there are people standing in pulpits coming from a rather different perspective in some ways. Though, of course, we still share a lot in common too. <laughs> is that balanced enough? <laughs> are there other questions? Did I see a hand go up? No, I didn't. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I heard A.M. Kennedy on the radio this morning talking about mobile phones, internet, iPads, mm. that we are closing in on our ability really to unwrap the sacred because we spend so much time, especially in England and in London. She thought it was better in other countries, but that, yeah. that we, we, we lose the ability to unwrap the sacred by, by being so focused on this tiny world of the internet. Do you agree with that? What do you think there's good things to find? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like anything else, it's a tool, isn't it? And it depends how you use it. And I think, yes, we we sometimes do struggle against that temptation always to be, you know, sort of staring at this little screen instead of relating to the people alongside us. But I also think that the internet opens up worlds and enables connection and... Um, I'm on Twitter and I absolutely love Twitter and there are things that I find out about life which I would never find out if I didn't happen to glance at you know what so-and-so is saying today and oh yeah you know, interesting link to an article somewhere um, so I think it all comes down to how we use it and yes there is a danger um, in those kind of technologies that they will close us in instead of open us up which I think is, is kind of what's being said but I think both are very possible there's a theologian called Vicky Beeching who now does thought for the day regularly who's absolutely excellent um, and she has just written her PhD thesis all about that really all about um, internet and social media and uh, and, and she is a, a Christian and so it'd be interesting to um, you know if you want to google her <laughs> then uh, she has some great websites and so um, she's got some very interesting things to say yeah do we have any other questions Yes. Um, I, I'd like to make the comment that um, I've done a lot of interfaith dialogue mm. and that actually my Christian faith has been greatly deepened by meeting mm. people from other faiths. And actually now, I'm now in dialogue with a humanist mm -hmm. that is also challenging me very much. And I'm very interested in this sort of duality between evangelization and dialoguing. And it seems to be a constant problem. How do you actually balance the two things up? Would you like to say something about that? Yes. Um, I wrote a little bit about difference in the first um, in the first book that I wrote, The Courage to Connect, because I believe that we can learn hugely from people who are very different from ourselves and people who believe differently from ourselves as well as live differently. Um, 
And of course, in that, in those kinds of conversations, the difficult questions are all about, so am I trying to persuade you that what I think <laughs> is more right <laughs> than what you think, or is even absolute, <laughs> the absolute truth? And I mean, different Christians are, are, I think, on a kind of sliding scale of, of where they're at in relation to that particular question. And so some would, uh, would say, it's about being alongside and learning from, and I'm not here to try and change your mind about anything. I mean, others perhaps somewhere in the middle would say, well, we'll learn from each other, and we might both change our minds about certain things. And then others will say, well, all that we're supposed to be doing is convincing that person that we're right, you know, and that the Christian faith um, you know, says this, and that's, that's what it is. Um, so I, I think there's a great richness of possibility in dialogue, in um, interfaith dialogue and dialogue with people who believe differently from ourselves, because I think, in some ways, it can enable us to clarify both what we do um, fully understand and believe about our own faith um, and what we might want to question and, and look at in a different way. But then I'm quite liberal about that sort of thing. So you'd get a very different answer from, um, from other people. I'm in constant dialogue with, uh, with people who think differently. As I'm married to somebody who, doesn't, who wouldn't call himself a signed-up Christian, might, might call himself a humanist. I think that's probably what he is. Um, and, and I just you know, enjoy those kind of uh, fruitful <laughs> exchanges, really. Um, but some Christians would think that's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. I think we had a question at the back. A hand went up. Yes. Um, hi. I uh, <laughs> uh, very much enjoyed your talk. And, Thank um, you. Um, sitting here and thinking of myself listening to uh, servants along the same line, uh, that whole kind of everyday mm. connection, I've always found myself very drawn to that kind of thing in a sermon. And, um, listening to it here in this context, it made me think a little bit about um, some of the things that you mentioned about um, finding finding your God, or however you want to put it, in the cosmos or in yeah. the world. It seems very individualistic. Mm. We would all maybe see things differently. Yep. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts um, about the more communal aspect of that, because I think a part of Christianity I think it, it has its roots in community. Yes. And I think um, we all come together because it's a community. And I, I wonder if you can convince me that I'm just not self-indulging when I do that. <laughs> well, I think that <laughs> I think that both feed us in different ways, and so there are. Uh, there are ways which will appeal to particular individuals where they will connect with God on their own in a space. Uh, but yes, of course, we learn through the, the communities that we become part of. And I suppose that was partly what I was trying to say about you know, connecting with um, discovering the, the sacred in other people um, and in conversation and in, in each other's lives. Um, I, I happen to believe that the, in some ways, the this, this betrays a bias in me, but in some ways the best sort of Christian community uh, is one where people are very different from one another and bring lots of different things to that time together in worship and, um, and that that can be a very creative and engaging place in which to find God. I do think worship is important, if that's the, 
you know, that's the core of the question that you're asking me. And worshipping together um, is something which can take us to different places because of, uh, of one another's experience. And um, yes, that, that experience together is a different experience than um, and the experience of building community and figuring out what it means uh, to be Christians alongside one another, what it means to support one another and enable one another's journey, one another's journeys in that. So I'm not sure I've answered that very well, but I do think it's as important as the individual stuff. Thank you, yes. I think, I think following on from that, but also from the um, comment about the internet, which I totally agree with, it's a tool to be used. Yeah. I think, for me, it's a challenge of how do we encourage both ourselves and those around us to be disciplined to follow something through, mm. whilst being open to new experiences. Yeah. Intention. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think, I think we we have to be kind of kind enough to ourselves to acknowledge that at different points in our life. Um, we may connect with God in different ways, and so sometimes it may it may absolutely have to be through the more disciplined approach. And sometimes, whatever the circumstances are, it means that that it will have to be more spontaneous, just depending on your your own life situation. Uh, but I would say that ideally, a bit of both <laughs> um, is the you know is the way that we're going to um, be deepened more spiritually. Now, having said that, then you then have to add in the dimension of personality, don't you? And, and different people with different personalities will find all sorts of, you know, a wide range of experiences helpful in their connecting with God. So who am I to prescribe for anybody else? What, you know, what is the, what is the best way? So, Sorry, can I follow up on that? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think just follow, um, I absolutely agree with personality, and I suppose then picking up on the role of the church and the community. Mm. So for somebody being part of a community yep. is a key to their spirituality. Yes. To somebody else, that's something they can leave behind. Yes. Yes, and I think the church needs to be sensitive to that. I mean, I think, I think churches can, a sweeping statement coming up, but churches can have a habit of, as soon as somebody walks through the door, not only do they want to draw them in to be part of the community, but they want to give them five different jobs to do and, you know, persuade them to join three groups. And, um, and just there's a kind of assumption that being part of community means that very sort of intense, uh, full-on, you'll always be there for everything. Um, some people need to uh, use the resources of the church by simply turning up <laughs> um, every now and again and receiving and going away and processing it and living it out in their, in their daily lives. So again, that varies according to personality or circumstance of life, really. Yes? Uh, having heard uh, this morning about the beginning of chapter, Luke chapter 15, about God searching for us, mm. Perhaps an impression can be given that God is passive, but we are searching for Him. And I think we all forget that God searches for yeah. us. Can you comment on that? Yes, I mean, that is, I, I'm, that, I think that's kind of where. I suppose that connects with thoughts about grace, really, and um, and when we're 
attempting to make space in our lives or silence or whatever, that's in order that we can notice that God is doing that because I think we're perfectly capable of not noticing quite a lot of the time because we're not paying attention. However much God is initiating, uh, we're not um, in such a state that we're prepared to receive or notice. Uh, so I suppose that would be the, be the connection for me. But yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, it's the, um, the shepherds searching for the, <laughs> the hundreds of sheep, isn't it? You know, taking the initiative and going out and, um, and, and yeah, pursuing. I do believe that God pursues us. Yeah. Might I follow on from that? Um, perhaps that it can be in our time of greatest need or when the points at which we're most disintegrated yes. that we're actually closest to God because, mm. because we're that much more open, because we've got nothing standing in the way in a sense. Our, mm. our ego, our attempt to be perfect yes. has just gone. Yes. And that's when we're more open to God's grace. Yes, when we're at our most fragile in a way, I think, because then we are least uh, likely to put up those barriers of self-sufficiency or uh, imagined self-sufficiency and um, um, omnicompetence, <laughs> which can get in the way of our relationship with God. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it can be a very hard thing to hear, I think, when you're in that particular moment, uh, if somebody tries to say to you, <laughs> you know, this is oh, this is a great opportunity you know, to to connect with God. But I think there is a truth, there is a profound truth in that. Um, I think that's what Barbara's next book, the book that's just come out, is about, as far as as I'm aware. Um, but I think an acknowledgement of uh, of our own fragility leads us to an openness mm. before God that we don't necessarily have when we're being terribly self-sufficient mm. together. Mm. I think we've got time for just one more question. Yes, thank you. What is God? <laughs> <laughs> that one final question. <laughs> you know, I could rely on you for something like that, Giles. Thank you. <laughs> no, I didn't know that particular question was coming, but I knew it was going to be something challenging. <laughs> what is God? Um, well, God... Uh, for me, God connects with all of those. Um, God is the source of everything, the reason that there is anything at all, um, and the, um, the creative force um, in everything, uh, who gave of God's self in, um, in the most significant way in becoming one of us in, in the flesh, you know, and, um, and partaking of every single kind of particularity of, of human life that's just for a start <laughs> that's, that's top of head sort of and and I just say look at Jesus and, you know, who gives us all sorts of clues as to uh, as to what God is like and about and and for but ultimately for I mean God is, is for me is the all-encompassing um, never failing eternal being who holds us in uh, in love, which which cannot be changed, whatever we do or think or say. Thank you very much. I think that's a conversation that might continue. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Rosemary very much, and also all of you for being here and contributing to the conversations that have been taking place. Um, just a few housekeeping notices. There'll be no Sunday Forum in August, so the next Sunday Forum will be on the 7th of September, 
and we'll be welcoming Graham Usher, who will be talking about his book, Places of Enchantment, Meeting God in Landscapes, which sounds like it could be a follow-up to Rosemary's book. Uh, There's more information about the upcoming Sunday forums here at the front. So if you'd like to take a copy, please do. It uh, goes right up until Christmas. So there's lots of information there, should you wish it. Um, And there'll also be, if you'd like to buy copies of Rosemary's book, they are available for sale and she will willingly sign them. Uh, So we do hope that you'll join us again for future forums. Uh, So thank you very much.